When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of our God! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy Christ, as we enter into an experience of your word, help us to follow you, trusting that you are always, always leading us into life. Amen. We tell this Palm Sunday story every year with its vivid sights and sounds. We enter into it. We join the crowd. We wave our, psalm, our palms. We sing our hosannas every year, every year as we enter into Holy Week. We probably know the story by heart. Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey or two to shouts of hosanna usually reserved for a king. The people spread their cloaks on the road while others do the same with palm branches. It is a red carpet arrival. Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David, Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of our God. And we know what will happen over the course of the week. So it's, it's not that difficult to imagine another procession on the other side of town, the arrival of Pontius Pilate on behalf of the empire, sent for this festival season to make sure that the crowds don't get too out of hand, to make sure there's no trouble, no uprising. That's likely a very different procession with the horses and the troops and the armor and the weaponry as Pilate processes in in what someone has called the gaudy glory of empire. Two processions into Jerusalem on what we know is a collision course. The crowds shout Hosanna, Pontius Pilate takes his place on the seat of power, and Matthew says the whole city was in turmoil. In the Greek it's more, the whole city was shaken. Something seismic is going on here. 
We tell this story every year, and last year, when I finished writing my Palm Sunday sermon, I had one question left over. So I wrote it down, and I wrote for next year's Palm Sunday sermon. And it was this. What happens to the crowd? It's all fine and good to stand in this Palm Sunday moment, but we know what comes next. We know about Good Friday. Between this moment and Good Friday, what happens to the crowd? What happens to the crowd to turn their shouts of Hosanna into shouts of crucify him? That's the question I want us to consider as we enter into, this, into the story this year. What happens to the crowd? In this morning's scripture, the crowd is all in on this king thing. This is chapter 21 of God, the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus has been out on the road traveling for a while now, proclaiming every place he can, the kingdom of God is at hand. The crowd has heard him, maybe heard of him, maybe the folks in the crowd have seen him, maybe, maybe they've heard him preach, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are the meek and the merciful, blessed are you. Maybe they've witnessed his healing touch. As Matthew describes it, Jesus is healing every disease and sickness among the people. Just before this, just before this entry into Jerusalem, two men born blind receive their sight. Maybe some in the crowd were there when he fed 5,000, or maybe their hope has been stirred when they've heard Jesus say that the reign of those who wield power over us is done and that the powerless are finally rising up. And so the crowds acclaim him king. The son of David descended from the royal line and they shout, Hosanna, save us now. There are hints, though, that this Jesus isn't going to be king like the world might expect. In all this pomp, Matthew says that Jesus enters humbly, not with an army, not with power over, and he enters in on not just one, but two donkeys. Did you notice that? It's true. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, unlike the other Gospels, Matthew has two animals in this parade. Jesus sends two men to get two animals, a donkey and the foal of a donkey, a baby donkey. And he rides in on them. Now set aside for a moment what that might literally look like. Literal is not the point. Matthew takes this Old Testament prophecy, this image, the king comes in on a donkey, establishes his reign, and the king comes in on what one writer calls the cult of a pack animal, a beast of burden, one who serves. Jesus is claiming and inaugurating a new order, not by violence, not by violence, but by humble service. But the crowd sees a king, and they shout, Hosanna, and the city quakes. So what happens to the crowd that changes their song to crucify him? Now, now I started with a theory. We know that the city is in turmoil. We know that Jesus is about to provoke the powers again and again as he moves through the week. So my theory was that Jesus must do something. 
He must do something along the way that turns the crowd against him. Maybe he says something that's just too radical. He turns one table too many in the temple and he loses the crowd. They turn on him. I set out to test that theory and I kept reading past Palm Sunday on into Holy Week. And what I found was that I was wrong. It happens. <laughs> but that's not what happens in the Gospel of Matthew. To be sure, Jesus provokes the powers and the powers don't like it, not one bit. But the crowd stays with him. Jesus turns the table in the temple. He tells stories that suggest that those in power will lose power. He calls the authorities hypocrites. He pronounces woes against just about every power. And he says, plain as day, the shaking of the city means that every stone you see is coming down. Something seismic is happening here. Now, the authorities don't like that. But there's nothing that suggests that Jesus loses the crowd in all that. In fact, the crowd seems to stick with him. The authorities and the powers, they decide early on that they're going to arrest him. And that grows into a plan not only to arrest him, but to kill him. But they don't because they're afraid of the crowds. The crowds stay with Jesus until, until a very particular moment on Good Friday. Jesus has been arrested, taken before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate says he really doesn't see anything to charge this guy with. His wife even warns him not to. She sends word that she's had a dream and have nothing to do with this innocent man. But Pilate asks the crowd. There's a tradition that during the festival, the people can have one prisoner released. And Pilate, having seen the crowd follow Jesus, heard that they shout Hosanna, asked them, do you want this Jesus? Is this the person you want? And Matthew says, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, another prisoner, to be freed and to have Jesus executed. That's where it happens. That's where the crowd turns on him. The city is quaking and a few people in concentrated power say the word and the crowd's hosannas turn to crucify him. The old order strikes back and the power of the crowd aligns with the power over in the hands of those few and the crushing power of the empire grinds into gear. There are folks who study crowds. Why do crowds do what crowds do, particularly when they turn to violence? And there's a theory that's been around for a long while that you may have heard, that people in large crowds somehow lose their sense of self and become emotionally impulsive and susceptible to others. We, the crowd mentality takes over and we have no idea what we're doing. Modern day researchers critique that theory as insufficient. It leaves no room for personal responsibility, and it doesn't explain why so many protests don't turn violent. We know that during the civil rights movement, where, where protesters were grounded and trained in the practice of nonviolent direct action, protesting crowds were able to remain nonviolent in the face of the worst that power has to offer. Physical and verbal abuse at lunch counters, dogs and fire hoses unleashed on protesters. We know that movements and crowds can also do great good. 
studying actual protests and crowds and riots over the last few decades, researchers now say that crowds are neither inherently wise or reckless. Instead, the attitudes and behavior of the crowd reflect the intentions that brought them together in the first place. Much depends on the sense of identity the sense of identity that individuals bring to the crowd, their sense of who they are, who they are following, and where they are headed. Where crowds are unmoored and drifting, or where they identify with leaders and systems that wield power over and advocate violence, they are indeed susceptible to the influence of concentrated power in the hands of a few. It's not at all clear that the crowds who shout Hosanna on that day have a shared sense of who they are or a clear sense of who they are following. What is more clear is that they expect a king who will overthrow the existing powers by force. What is more clear is that they are still operating within those old systems of power over and violence and domination stuck in those old systems of domination with just a word from a concentrated power in the hands of a few, they turn, they fall into line, they become part of the violence, a willing tool in the system that does them harm. We should be on high alert. We should be on high alert for efforts to concentrate power in the hands of a few, perpetuating the old systems of domination. We see that all over the world today. An autocrat in Russia launches a war that the world can't stop because he wields the threat of nuclear holocaust. In Israel, we see an effort by leadership to consolidate their power by crippling the judiciary, its power seeking to wield that power unchecked. And of course, that particular power grab is aligned with attempted power grabs that we have seen in our own nation, power grabs that try to invoke and incite the power of crowds. We've seen that in the January 6th insurrection, a crowd gathers to protest election results. The would-be autocrat who has lost the election attempts to seize power back by provoking the crowd, tries to undermine and stop the constitutional transition of power, and a group who have come to do more with concentrated power backed by presidential goading and encouragement turn the crowd into a violent mob who storm the Capitol, kill a police officer, and hunt down elected officials in the halls of Congress, including even the Republican vice president. We've seen that in the past few weeks. We're seeing it now, the same playbook of the old order as that same former president when threatened with judicial process begins to provoke the crowd, seeking to obstruct justice and shut down the judicial system. This is how the old crumbling structures of power work. For far too long, this has been their playbook. We stay stuck in the old paradigms of violence, power over, and domination. Without a clear alternative vision, the crowds are manipulated and become complicit in the brute power of the old order. In this morning's scripture, as the city quakes, the crowd falls into line. The only one, the only one who remains calm 
and steady is Jesus. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus has heard the voice saying, you, you are my beloved child. And he knows where he's headed. He's told the crowd and us again and again what he has come to do. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, those who hunger and thirst for justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are inheriting the earth. The crumbling old order has had its day. Jesus proclaims and inaugurates a brave new world grounded not in domination but in mutuality of relationship and in human dignity where those who have been held down low at long last are being lifted up. With clarity, Jesus knows where he is headed. He's been telling us all along. He knows what the powers will do. The human one must suffer and be killed. And he knows what God is doing and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus knows that he is heading to the cross and that when the powers have had the say, their say beyond the cross, he knows what lies ahead is resurrection. Life beyond what we could ever imagine, alive in the world, a brave new world, right here and now and forever. And so Jesus sets his face like flint. That image from this morning's psalm, he sets his face like flint and he moves forward into Holy Week. I have preached a good number of sermons here. Sometimes in those sermons, we engage the big issues of the world, seeking justice. Sometimes we talk about spiritual practices, prayer and mindfulness and silence, grounding ourselves in what is true. Sometimes we talk about community and inclusion, God's love embodied in our sustaining love and care for each other and for the whole world. Sometimes we talk about how to live our imperfect lives day by day by the abounding grace of God. Every bit of that, every bit of that in some way or another is about being prepared for this moment. It's about being prepared for this moment and for every moment when life brings us challenges that seem too big to face. It's about moving forward together amid all the world's noise and shouting through a world that is shaking with our face set like flint, knowing who we are, knowing who we are following and knowing where we are headed. It's about trusting and knowing that by God's grace, we will get there together and live together in this brave new world that resurrection is opening up even now. As the echoes of the hosannas fade, we move now into Holy Week. Following Jesus, knowing what lies ahead, knowing whose we are and who we follow, and knowing that everything, everything that lies ahead 
is life. 